This is episode 83 of the Landscape Photography Show. And before we get into the episode, I just want to thank Barbara Livieri, who is a Patreon subscriber and a patron to the Landscape Photography Show podcast and just helps the podcast continue to keep rolling week after week. So I just want to thank her first and foremost. If you're interested in being a patron, you can visit today's episode show notes at davidjohnsonart.com or go to patreon.com slash davidjohnston and sign up for exclusive content there and support the podcast to keep it going week after week to give you inspiration and also to gain exclusive benefits on Patreon as well. In this podcast episode, we're talking with David Cobb, and it's funny about photographers. You know, I feel like I know a lot of photographers virtually, although it feels like we've known each other personally for a long time because there is so much back and forth collaboration between a lot of the photographers in the community. And David and I have known each other virtually for a long time. We've never met in person, but I feel like I know David very well just from the interactions that we've had. Now, in this episode specifically, we're talking about a lot of David's background, what he brings to the table in landscape photography in terms of community, the Photo Cascadia team. We're talking about the books that he created and the process that goes into creating a photography book. And one of the things that I found really interesting about our discussion is right at the beginning, we, we discuss inspirations from other photographers and other other artists and how that inspired him to get started in photography. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. We're here with David Cobb. David has actually joined me on my previous podcast, but I wanted to reach out to him and get him on this podcast as well because he has a plethora of experience to talk about. David, welcome into the show. Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Um, I would like to start off like I talk with everybody who comes on about actually your journey getting started in photography and, and how that occurred. Uh, it, it started early. Um, I had a very, I had a toy camera to begin with and I broke it quickly, but I was always seemed to be borrowing or right out stealing my parents' camera and using that and photographing. But it started more as I got serious after college and I started backpacking a lot and recording those trips basically. And then I started my long distance hiking, which I had a point and shoot. So I wasn't doing any serious photography, but I, I learned a lot on those long backpacking trips, walking across the country a couple of times and across Canada once and a bunch of other places. So I learned a lot about composition and how to shoot. And growing up through high school and college, I was actually painting and drawing a lot too. So I learned a lot of compositional tools from that, which helped out. But those hikes really did it for me because I could study what I shot and decided what I liked, what I didn't like. And then I got a real camera and then I started to expand on my photography. 
and concentrate on actually getting better. I can't imagine walking across the entire country. I've, I've backpacked several times, but across the entire country, I, the question that comes to mind immediately is what was the weirdest place that you ever slept? The weirdest place I've slept on a long distance hike, and it wasn't probably across the country, was uh, up on an island in the Arctic Ocean. I had walked across the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and a plane picked me up in a field and then dropped me off at an island, kind of barter island up there. Uh, and the natives people there were all excited because they had just caught a whale. So there was a whale carcass at the end of the runway and I was camped near a corrugated metal shed that was clanking because the wind was blowing so hard. And I tried to put my tent poles into the permafrost. So that was tough. And then there was a polar bear at the end of the runway feasting on a carcass. So that was a mix of wild and dump. So <laughs> that was the, probably the weirdest place I've ever camped. Did they offer you any of this whale? They did not offer any whale. So I uh, decided to walk into town and get a pizza because that's what I was really craving at the time. I'd probably the, take pizza over whale. Yeah, but it was the most expensive pizza I've ever bought in my life. It was like, How much are we talking it was like 40 or 50 bucks for a, a small crappy pizza. <laughs> but you, sometimes you just have to do what you're going to do. Do you remember the first photograph that you took that actually meant something to you or you were excited about or even thought this, this is really something that I'd like to pursue? Uh, the first photograph that I ever took was probably something on the Pacific Crest Trail, but I, I, I think it was uh, it was a very soft focus flower image of uh, shooting stars, and I thought it looked. I, I love the color combination, the greens and the pinks, and I love the softness of it. I love the composition of it, and today I probably wouldn't take a second look at it, but I think at the time. I thought, wow, this is, this is something, and I want to pursue this. But I also saw Edward Weston's Pepper Number 33 when I was a kid. My parents took me to an art museum, and I saw that photo in the art museum, and I thought, my God, if people can do that in photography, I'm all in. So that was a big inspiration into me getting into taking photography seriously. Okay, I'm not familiar with this photograph. De describe what it is to me. It is just a pepper, and the light on it is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the light and shadow, um, and it has a very sensual form about it. So Weston did a lot of nudes also, and he took this picture of this vegetable a very common vegetable and it was an absolute work of art. So I just thought if you can do that with something that's so ordinary as a pepper, then this is just an incredible art form. Have you always been inspired by other types of photography like that one? Uh, 
Uh, I wouldn't say always because my interest in photography, you know, I, I, I remember that photo, but after that, I didn't, I wasn't inspired by other photos too much, but I'm more inspired now looking back into the history of photography and study more in the history of photography. So you can see things progress throughout history and you can see other artists doing this. They're, they're kind of honoring past photos by photographing very similar things to it, but putting a different meaning onto it. So there's a photo by Paul Strand that has uh, a fence. It's, I think it's called White Picket Fence. And I actually saw the real photo before the pandemic started. Um, and so I was, I, I'd read about that photo, then I saw that photo. And then I saw someone else's photo kind of doing a nod to, to Strand's photo, so a, a recent photographer, and putting a different spin on it. Um, so, and that photo is really important because it, it was when photography decided to go sharper and take a photo as a photo, not trying to make it look like a painting like the pictorialists were doing. So Strand was the first one to really keep it sharp. And this other person, you know, that, that, that photo had a picket fence and then some houses around it. And it was kind of this idyllic looking shot. But this other person, uh, his name's, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's Uad Bey. And he's got a Master of Fine Arts from Yale. He's a professor of photography and fine arts in Chicago. But his photo of it is a white picket fence also. And you can tell that he's seen Strand's photo. But this person is African-American and the fence looks more like a wall and it looks like it's uh, in, n not permitting him to go forward and blocking that cottage or that structure in the background, less than strands. Strands was more welcoming, whereas this it's blocking, um, which I suppose being African-American, he may feel that way in our society. So it is very similar to Strand's photo, but it says something totally different. So that kind of stuff uh, interests me. How do you take a message or a meaning like that and apply it to a composition? That in landscape photography, that is something that is extremely hard to do and something that I don't think about much. I think about the scene. I try to think about the weather and how I'm feeling. So uh, slightly changing the color of a mountain on a cold day and slightly cooling the image down to convey that coolness might be something I would do. Uh, or adding a little blue when it's fall color uh, somewhere, um, just slightly making it blue to, to work on the colors to complement each other a little bit more and make the yellows pop. But as far as that goes, what that guy was doing with Strand's photo, that's harder to do in landscape photography because it really doesn't have that kind of history associated with it yet. Uh, yet. On your website, though, you say that you try to portray the fragility of nature 
into your photographs. And that's why I'm, I wanted to know like, what approach do you have? If I could put myself in your boots behind your lens and you see something that shows you that, how do you go about doing it? Well, I think the, what I strive to do is to simplify my photo as much as possible. Not always. Sometimes the scene, like a forested scene doesn't allow that, but to simplify it more, um, I've got a recent photo of a lone tree in the winter time and the tree is surrounded by snow and white sky and there's just a simplicity to it, but it is all alone and it is winter time and it is just kind of hanging on there. Um, so that's one way to convey it. Uh, there's a photographer named Brzezinski that also shows man kind of ruining earth. So all his photos are about uh, the environment and how we're just, we're changing that environment. So he'll have photos from the sky uh, looking down on pollution in the water or open pit mines and stuff like that. So he's, he's showing and conveying that to people, um, in his own way, but in my way, it's probably more, uh, to simplify the image and to show it all alone and to show it as a fragile element. Do your photographs like that, that, that portray a message, do they kind of represent you and who you are and your personality? Now that I think about it, probably, um, you know, showing, showing a bit of that as, uh, as me as a photographer. And there's a reason I live in the middle of nowhere. There's a reason I take long distance hikes all by myself. Uh, so being in nature all by myself and, and being alone is something I do a lot of, uh, but I have no problem being with groups of people either. I've, I've got a, I'm kind of an introvert extrovert, so I can be with a large group of people and it'll be exhausting over time, but, uh, that's just something that I am comfortable doing also. Are you comfortable doing things like this? Yeah. Did it take time to develop that? It does. I've, I've spoken a lot in front of large groups of people and I've done a number of podcasts and I've also this during the pandemic, during this winter, I've probably done about 15 or so, uh, presentations to camera clubs too. So that is part of what I do and it's, it's teaching and I'm very comfortable doing that. And I've also, before I had this job as a photographer and being a photographer, I was in sales. I had my own company where we were distributing music. So I was having to sell labels to come on to the company. And then I was having to sell there uh, along with other salespeople, uh, their music to outlets. So that's just kind of what I do. That's interesting. So did you have your own music label? Is that like what it was? No, uh, we would actually, we were representing about 500 to 700 different labels around the world and distributing it in the United States. 
what did music sharing and an easy music download kind of do to that industry referring back to napster and limewire and that kind of shows my age even though i am still pretty young <laughs> what it what it did and what i recognized that it was going to do was to totally screw the industry and make it make it harder to well harder and easier i guess but uh for the for the little guy it's going to be tougher to make money because they survive on selling those cds they survive on touring and so does the big huge act but they can also survive on selling hundreds of millions or millions and millions of uh, records and downloads. So they're not going to be heard as much, but as I noticed in the music industry at the time, when those formats that you mentioned were coming forward and we were also just starting to do digital downloads, uh, selling to Apple, also selling to Amazon. Um, the little guy wasn't heard as much at first. So now as it's become a lot more saturated with those kind of companies, it, the little guy is suffering a lot more. And I, you, I, I saw where those things were going and that's why I sold and became a photographer full time. Well, do you see anything kind of infringing on photography and starting to do the same thing related to social media, uh, being able to steal photographs off the internet or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very similar actually, as far as the, well, there's the saturation of photographs already. Um, that's definitely hurting sales because people used to be able to live on their stock alone, but that's Im frankly impossible to do anymore. So it's, there are a lot of similarities that are changing photography as an art form is changing. So I guess we'll see where it goes, but, uh, you know, it's been a fun ride so far, so I'm not getting off the bus. How do you personally adapt to changes that occur? For me, as far as adapting, I am, I'm doing more, as I said, I've done about 15 presentations to photo clubs. So that's something that I wasn't doing before at all. Um, during the pandemic, that adaption and, and that pivot is something that you've got to do. Uh, but my workshops are popular and, and that when I first got into photography, I took over someone else's business that was getting out. And I thought, okay, uh, when I first got in, I thought, am I going to sell prints? Am I going to do the workshop thing? Am I, where am I going to go with this to make a business? And what my model was, was to take over this person's business because he wanted to sell it. So I helped him for two years. And then at the end of that two years, I got to know his clients. They got to know me. And then I purchased his business, Best in the Northwest Photo Workshops. So right off the bat, I started with those workshops. And at the time, there weren't a ton of people taking photo workshops. Uh, at the time, I there was a 
a bunch of camera stores and I would have to make laminated flyers and mail them to camera stores up and down the West Coast to uh, get people interested in taking the workshops. And that's the way I did it. So that changed fairly quickly because the camera stores started to go out of business and email was getting stronger. So I could then email newsletters out to people. So I didn't have to send those laminated placards all over the place. My mailing costs went down, which was helpful. Uh, and then social media started. So I was having to promote more on social media, but now social media is going away. So I have to adapt and get people more interested in my website, get, uh, my, my clientele now is, is strong, so uh, it's nice to have that to depend on, too. From all of your experience in workshops, and I mean, back when email marketing started, that's probably when the retention rate was up 90% on an email, and now it's like you're doing great if you're getting 10% on email openings. Um, and I get somebody- 66%. Wow. Okay. Okay. Still doing well. Yeah. Um, if somebody came to you and said, I want to start doing workshops right now, how would they get their foot in the door in doing that? Uh, if they want to do it right now, they would have to, the, the permits are getting stronger and stronger all, or you just have to get more and more permits all the time. It seems like, so for the best of the Northwest workshops, when I first started, nobody even heard of permits. And so then national parks had a permit program going on and then state parks. And now I have to get a, a guiding license for this, for Oregon, which is this particular state. So I have to have that. And that means I have to get wilderness first aid. That has to means that also means I need a first aid. That also means I need a certain bit of knowledge around that. And then you've got to learn how to run a business too. So I had that going in and a lot of people forget about that side of it, but running a business is important too, especially if you want to survive in photography. So you really need the importance of your images. Strong images is something that you need also. Um, it creates interest in the workshops, but it also creates interest in you as a teacher um, with your clients. So they go, I like that photo. I like that person's style. So therefore, I want to take workshops from that person. So um, and then uh, being able to teach helps also. Is there a way to work on developing that skill of teaching? And the thought that comes to mind for me is collaborations on being kind of like a second instructor or a help for a uh, main instructor on a workshop. But then the question comes to mind, and this is just how my mind works of, well, how do you convince that person to be kind of like their second hand person on the workshop? That one's tough. I mean, for me in particular, I, I had a friend that I knew from long distance hiking who was also interested in photography and he helped me for a long time. And then his wife said, you know, all our vacation times being taken off by you helping David on your workshop. So he had to kind of <laughs> take that away a little bit. 
uh, and but at that time, Photo Cascadia was just getting started, so I had all of the Photo Cascadia crew to then ask to say, "Hey, you're interested in being a second instructor on the work workshop?" And they're my peers, so it's nice to have them on board. And I've had many, many offers from people saying, I'd like to work, learn how to do workshops from you. Can I come along and do that? And I've always said no, because I'm, I'm not teaching other people how to do workshops. I'm doing this as a collaboration with my peers and I'm doing it as a business. So um, as far as teaching other people how to do workshops, I haven't been open to that yet. You have two books that people can buy on your website, one visionary landscapes and one called quiet beauty, Japanese gardens of North America. Mm -hmm. Um, when we're on the topic of business for landscape photography, like we are now, are books still a viable way to make an income with landscape photography with so many social media and ebook downloads and electronic courses coming out? I think they're a viable way if you have a lot of books because then you can get a passive income, um, especially with a, you know, you mentioned those, but then Photo Cascadia has a book, Photo Cascadia has an ebook, and then I also have an ebook too. So all of those things together have money coming in now and again, not a ton from each, but they add up. But it's not really a huge viable way to make an income these days. It's more of a way to use it as a tool to help market yourself and create interest in your photography. Um, but it also feels good to have things in print. You know, when I, when I die, I've got a lot of digital images out there and to actually have books and my photographs in print that the digital images will disappear and finally go away into oblivion. But those books will last for quite some time, I, I hope at least. Um, so as far as a viable income, probably not. But I think it really pays off to have those feathers in your cap because it gives you also some gravitas in a way that uh, once you've been doing these books, it, it helps your reputation. And I think that helps with workshops and other things. And as a marketing tool, you know, that quiet beauty, I got reviews in the New York times, the LA times, the Japan times, the press all over the country. And it sold extremely well and it's still out there selling steadily today And that kind of press and marketing, you just can't buy. So as far as putting my name on a map and helping me in that way, it certainly did that. And along with that, I was then able to print images and I approached the U.S. Botanic Garden and they said, your timing's perfect. We want something like that because it's our 100th anniversary of the cherry blossoms in Washington, D.C. And then I was able to tie in this... Uh, my photographs and showing them in front of all the hundreds and thousands and or millions of people that go through the U S botanic garden in Washington, DC every year. 
And then from there, it went to the Institute of Health. And then from there, it went to as exhibitions at different Japanese gardens and other places. So to tie that in with the book, that helps. That helps create money. And then when I was photographing for those books, I was able to, you know, I, I had a stipend that I was fronted. And then I was able to photograph other places when I visited the garden and around the country, then I was able to photograph and help my stock photography or just help my photography in general. So everything ties together and to just say it's a book and it's going to give you money that in itself isn't going to do it for you, but tying everything else in there helps. And the photographs that were at the national institutes of health's, health or all these doctors and buyers would go through there, there and they'd say, we love these photos. We want them in our hospital. So I got orders from that and it was filled through a gallery. So I really didn't have to, except fulfilling the order, I was able to ship off those. So it helped with income that way too. Hey guys, real quick, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned Barb Olivieri's name as a patron to the Landscape Photography Show. You know, what is Patreon and how can you support the podcast to continue going week after week? Well, Patreon is basically like a blog platform where you have exclusive rights as a patron to a lot of the content that nobody else gets to hear, nobody else gets to see. We're talking exclusive extended episodes and exclusive discussions with me and the photographers that come on the show that week and how we discuss you know, extra topics that nobody else hears on the podcast. You're getting access to monthly webinars and also benefits based on the tiers that you choose of how you want to support the podcast month after month so you're not going away empty-handed although it is a paid access website I wanted to form this so it would be a community of photographers that we could all interact with one another and know each other really well virtually as well not only that but I wanted to give you as much bang for your buck since this is a paid platform I wanted to pack in the benefits for this so if you want to learn more on how you can support the podcast you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston, or you can go to my website and click on the podcast link and you'll see a become a patron button at the top of the screen of any of the podcasts that you see. All right, guys, let's get back to the episode. Breaking off of finances on a more personal level, what does it mean to you when somebody does want to own a print, own a book, or even sign up for a workshop to learn specifically from you? It just feels good with, uh, especially with prints. If, if someone wants to buy a print that I have created because they like it, or if I get comments that how much they like the print, it, it just, it feels better than a like on social media. It, it becomes more personal and uh, there's, a, there's a warmer feeling around that, I guess. Have you gotten stories about connections that your images have with people? Oh yeah, definitely. You know, one person bought a flower an image of mine and they loved it. And her daughter liked it so much that 
when she left the house, she wanted to take it with her because she just wanted to look at it every day. So something like that, that just makes my day. In terms of, we mentioned your book on Japanese gardens. I'm, I'm interested, and in, and this is something that I wrote down that I wanted to ask you: Why go from kind of like the chaos of a natural landscape and shift to the orderly construct of a Japanese garden, specifically with specific pathways and plants and Zen gardens and feng shui attached to it? As far as my photography goes? Yeah. So for Japanese gardens, I've been photographing them a long, long time. I actually f- was photographing Japanese gardens back in the film day days with infrared film. And that's how I started photographing Japanese gardens. And for me, it was, I, I love the organization of them because it was easier for me to compose uh, I photograph color a lot, so I photograph gardens a lot. And the Japanese garden was something that, in my mind, just I, I, I had a love of them. And I just wanted to photograph them almost every day. I, I lived in Portland for a while, and about every day I would go to the Portland Japanese garden and photograph. And I just love being there. I love the peacefulness. And that way I didn't have to drive an hour to a wilderness area or the Columbia River Gorge to then go and be in nature and have that quiet and solitude. So for me, I was able to just go to the Portland Japanese Garden, which was probably 20 minutes away or 15 minutes away, and be there early in the morning when no one was there, enjoying that solitude before my day really began and then photographing. And then as I studied it more and I learned the variations and the different artists and designers that worked on those gardens, I was able to look at the Japanese gardens in a deeper level and understand them a little bit better. Had you studied them before you started photographing them? No. No, I just photographed them because I liked them and I thought they were cool. So the the studying of them came much later. And basically, as I started photographing them for the books, then I was studying them and taking them a lot more seriously because I had to know more of what they represented. And the better I got about that, the better I became a Japanese garden photographer. What do they represent and what do people know, need to know about them that makes them different than just a botanic garden? Uh, Well, there's different celebrations that go along with the Japanese gardens and something like Obon, which is similar in a way, I guess you'd say it to the day of the dead that's celebrated if you're in Mexico. Um, so, a, a, something like that and rituals that go along with the seasons of Japanese gardens. Um, there's a lot of work that is put into these Japanese gardens. And I used to go to the Japanese gardens and people would be on their hands and knees clipping the moss with tiny little tweezers. So 
that's how careful they were with getting the garden just right. And that tree that's so famous in the Portland Japanese garden, it's a very important tree to them. So how much they work and how much time they put into just keeping that tree alive, it was unhealthy and and they thought it was going to die for a while. But here, 10 years later, it's still alive and thriving. But to go under under there and to just photograph yet another photograph of that tree and not think much about it, it just, to me, there's more of a reverence there. And I don't photograph it hardly at all anymore. I haven't been there for a while, but there is a reverence with that kind of place and that kind of tree. Um, and each designer or each curator for the garden will do things totally differently. And it's fun to see, especially when I was doing the visionary landscapes, it's about the top Japanese garden designers in the U S and to see their styles and how they go about designing a Japanese garden and where their interests lie and how they go about doing it. Some are so particular and some are more laissez-faire and keeping it more natural. Um, just the different styles that are representative are, are wonderful. You mentioned Photo Cascadia just a little while ago. I'm curious as to how that idea and project got started and, and who was the one to organize it? It was really Adrian Klein that came to us. Uh, we, we were on Nature Photographers Network, and it was I, I had met online people like Sean and Zach, uh, Sean Bagshaw and Zach Schneff, uh, online back in 2004 and Adrian and, and Kevin McNeil back around 2005, 2006 and Chip Phillips about then too. And at that time I was photographing, just teaming up with different people and saying hello and going out and just shooting with people. And Adrian had this idea of forming a team kind of based on the, uh, F64 group but uh, he wanted to find people that actually got along with each other, that had the right psyche to be in the group. He wasn't looking for people that had the most popular photos or the most likes or anything like that at all. So we just wanted to get a group of people that would work well together and have fun together. And all of us said yes. And then when we met, we hardly knew each other. I, I knew Sean because I'd go out shooting with him quite a lot before we met, um, uh, formed as a photo Cascadia group. But uh, I had known Adrian a little bit and I'd known Kevin a little bit, but uh, Adrian put us all together and it's worked and it's been a wonderful thing. What do you think you bring to the table to the photo Cascadia team? Uh, I guess having run businesses in the past and having worked at newspapers, I'm probably better than others at deadlines and to structure a deadline. And I, maybe a historical per perspective of photography can help and possibly organizational skills. And also 
my geography and knowledge of the areas because I've done so much backpacking and long distance hiking and I've been to so many places and obscure places that I have a better feel for some of those areas to, you know, for instance, the Oregon book, Oregon, my Oregon that just came out. We all had a lot of photos from Oregon, but there were places that we were missing. So I knew those areas pretty well where we were missing and and they would say, you know, we need to go to this place. We need to go to these mountains. We need to go to this area. And we need photos from here because there's just giant holes that we didn't have because they're under photographed places. So I guess that knowledge helped bringing it to the table. In terms of collaborations, kind of like how you have the team with Photo Cascadia, how important are collaborations for newer photographers getting started? I, I think photography is a lonely endeavor at times, and to have collaborations makes it less lonely. It gives you uh, someone that will help give input to your photography. It will help as far as bouncing off ideas. It's safe to hike with other people as opposed to going out alone, like I do all the time. But just to be with other people uh, in a group and shooting, it's it's safer to be that way. Um, So those are a few ideas there. Are photographers inclusive, though? in terms of business ideas, business projects to somebody who's maybe not well known and they approach you with an idea is the general business of a photographer inclusive to newer people getting started. I think so. Um, I think mentorships have always been a part of photography and there's a number of photographers that offer those. So I, I would guess that that's would be inclusive. Um, myself, that is something I've been thinking about more and more as I get older is to maybe mentor someone, uh, down the road as I start doing fewer workshops and I have more time to get away from that, uh, those workshops and to bring someone else up in photography, um, might be something I would look at. But, uh, you know, there's photography has been inclusive and and workshops are one way that photography is inclusive. Now, for that, people have to pay money, but it is an inclusive thing. My workshops in particular are very inclusive and the people that take them know each other really well. So it's almost like they miss their family when they're away. So I guess that's an inclusivity that exists. In terms of mentorships, like you mentioned, is that for you leaving more of a legacy behind than, say, somebody buying a print and having that sitting in their home? I would suppose so. It's not something I have done yet, but it's something that, yeah, passing on ideas, passing on uh, something to the next generation that would help with a legacy in a way but it's more towards, it would be more towards helping somebody else and uh, mentoring them along 
not just saying my way or the highway, but uh, giving them ideas, giving them thoughts and teaching them the business over time. What's coming up for you that, that people should be aware of and, and on the look for? I am just starting workshops again. This next week is my, going to be my first workshop in a, over a year. So that is something that I'm looking forward to. Photo Cascadia has been asked to do another project. So we have just begun work on that. So that project should be completed by fall of 2022. And as far as me personally, uh, with a pandemic, there's not a lot of new stuff coming up right now other than that. So I'm sure that will change in time. Well, he's David Cobb. David, I want to thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking photography. Okay. Thank you so much, David. I thought we'd might get confused with having two Davids on here, but it worked out pretty well. Somehow it worked. Okay. Take care. You know, David had some really good talking points on today's episode, some that I typically don't think about as a landscape photographer and how we can support each other as landscape photographers. So if you head over to Patreon, if you go to patreon.com slash David Johnston, you can get extra discussion with, with me talking about some of the reflections that I took away from this episode and also some tips on inspiration from other photographers, how to relay a deeper message in your compositions, uh, digital downloads in music and how that's also affecting photography right now with NFTs. Our book's still viable. You know, we talked about in that podcast episode the, the process of creating a book. And then also my experience, just like David had, of going from the chaos of landscape photography to photographing a botanical garden. So you can go to patreon.com slash David Johnston right now and get exclusive access to that discussion when you sign up to be a patron of the podcast and support it to keep going week after week. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Can't wait to see you next week.